This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 7th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers. I'm coming this week again from Phoenix, Arizona, where we're starting to get close to that 110-degree highs. So, yeah, the fun part of summer is beginning to come here in Phoenix. Uh, but we'll still kind of talk you through, and maybe as tax rules have kind of cooled off here in the last couple of weeks, maybe have a little bit of a break here as we start into summer. So this week we're going to talk about three different topics, two of which are covered by write-ups on the website and in the PDF you can download, one of which is not, it's just more of a general update on what we're seeing as far as any tax legislation, killing, not killing, clearing the United States Congress and some of the complications in doing so. So we will discuss the Senate parliamentarian's second opinion on using reconciliation limits uh, to get around the rules that generally require 60 votes in the Senate. We'll discover that the uh, Senate parliamentarian's second opinion has, has basically taken the wind out of the sails of where some in the Democratic Party had assumed they would be able to use another round or multiple rounds of reconciliation in order to pass multiple bills. We'll discuss exactly what happened in this rather arcane part of the uh, budget rules adopted back in 1974. Second, we'll talk about a case of a longtime tax CPA who admitted he has never read Schedule B instructions, despite being in practice for 60 years, saying that was because he's not an attorney. But he got clipped with willful failure to file FBAR information on his own personal accounts, and the court was not terribly impressed by the theory that he never read the Schedule B instructions. Finally, we're going to pick up a case we actually discussed five years ago, just about five years ago, involving MoneyGram and the question of whether MoneyGram is or is not a bank. Five years ago, the Fifth Circuit disagreed with the criteria the tax court had used when the court judged that MoneyGram was not a bank, that whole issue has now finally gone through the tax court and made its way back to the Fifth Circuit. We'll discuss why this time the Fifth Circuit found that they could accept the tax court's ruling that MoneyGram was not a bank. So we'll discuss and also discuss briefly why that's important. And more to the point, I think it illustrates some of the problems we run into when we may over, you know, kind of read a quick blurb about a case and tend to have it do things beyond what it does. And so we'll talk briefly about that as well. But let's go on to the Senate Parliamentarian. This is a budget opinion issued by Senate Parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough on June the 1st. And I'm taking a lot of this information from an article that appeared on Roll Call uh, back, a while, back a while back. So we had this. Now this goes back to two different rules here, um, one of which was issued on April the 8th and the other of which, or April the 7th, and one of which came out on June the 1st. So we'll talk a little bit about these dual uh, budget opinions and what they mean. Now, as you know, last week we discussed about the president's proposed Green Book and proposed changes to the tax law. And that got a lot of coverage, and we got we discussed last week what that could do, assuming it was passed. Now, the problem is always that little assuming it is passed routine. As a practical matter, probably that budget would clear the United States House, um, would have enough votes, would get through, so a majority in the U.S. House could pass it. And that's really all you almost need to worry about in the House. Can we get a majority of people to pass it? It is very, very easy to pass legislation in the U.S. House on a pure party line vote. That's part of the reason, if you remember historically, prior to the election of President Trump uh, in the Congress before that, the U.S. House repealed the Affordable Care Act 300 and some times, as I recall. And yet, once we had the president, it became a, little bit, a new president, it became a little tougher. Uh, we can discuss why Congress is very willing to do all kinds of things when they know it won't be law, but I don't want to get down to that little cynical discussion. Because, by the way, I'm not blaming either party for that because they both pull this stunt. But the House can pass it because it's very, very much a, a House, a branch of the 
basically legislative branch, a, a chamber that is very much run by the majority. And secondly, it also tends to be easier to get very partisan items through the House because most House members run in districts that, to be blunt, are drawn specifically to ensure that the real thing that matters in the election is the primary that determines who will be the nominee of the party that the district has been drawn to pretty much assure that person will be elected. There are very, very few truly competitive congressional districts out there. So in that case, mainly you're concerned about being run against as being not sufficiently partisan, not sufficiently for, you know, the home team. So that means the House tends to get very partisan things through it. Now, the United States Senate, though, is a little bit tougher. In the United States Senate, first, there's this slightly, um, shall we say, inconvenient problem that you have to run in the entire state. And the states, even if they had been drawn initially, knowing which way they would vote for the parties at the time, some states were brought in when the parties at the time, you know, were the uh, old Democratic Republicans, you know, and the Federalists. Some of them came in with the Democrats and the Whigs, and some of them came in, of course, with current status parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. But over time, states change their position. Will they generally go Democrat? Will they generally go Republican? And they may swap positions multiple times. And so, yeah, like I say, it's a basically inconvenient fact. House districts get redrawn every 10 years, so we, we can move the boundaries to keep the district safe, you can't really get the redraw on the state boundaries every 10 years to keep the state leaning the same way as it had before. The second problem in the Senate is that the Senate has a basic rule, uh, which was based on the old filibuster rule, that requires you to have 60 votes in the Senate, essentially, to bring any item to a vote. Um, it's a modification of the original Mr. Smith Goes to Washington-style filibuster. You may have seen the old movie uh, where somebody just kept talking forever. Uh, we no longer require that, although there was at least some discussion early in this year that we might go back that way. Haven't heard much of that recently. Uh, but we get this, you know, this structure, the idea being that in the Senate, you need to have a broader level of agreement. Now, there is one major exception. As you might guess, that 60-vote rule would pretty much allow a determined minority to simply stop everything, including items like annual budgets that have to be passed. So it would give an insane amount of power to that minority. So back in 1974, it was agreed that essentially we would have a special set of budget rules called the Reconciliation Rules. And the reconciliation procedure that was part of sex is found in uh, the 1974 budget law. It allows you to essentially those things covered by the budget, which generally have to deal with spending, taxes, and the debt limit. That those things in that one annual budget resolution, things covered by that budget resolution, have to go to a vote on the Senate floor, right? There is not a requirement to get a simple majority can call the vote. Now, there is a weird thing ahead of it called Votorama. Uh, not really called, but that's what it refers to it as. That requires the Senate to vote on a large number of proposed amendments. So it tends to be time-consuming, but they can force a vote. Now, this has been used consistently. Uh, now, going back to EGTRA, uh, which was, you may remember, that that was in that realm back with the George W. Bush as a method to pass various bills. Some of the bills passed under reconciliation. Now, EGTRA, as I mentioned last week, was passed with a few Democratic votes, mainly Republican votes. But still, you know, there was some crossover, just not 60 votes. What's happened in the interim, though, is that this has become a way to push a completely party-line vote through the Senate. Uh, some things that have passed under it have included the Affordable Care Act's revisions were passed under these rules. As well, we had the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed under these rules. 
and unsuccessfully an attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act uh, kind of blew up under these rules uh, back a few years ago. And this time, the ARPA that we recently had passed was passed under these rules. Now, back in April, the parliamentarian issued an opinion that essentially stated that you could take and modify, issue revised instructions on the reconciliation bill. And that was interpreted by some, it was a rather short opinion, but it was quickly interpreted to mean that, wait, well, we could revise it. That means we can keep going back and adding things and then pass these new pieces as revised reconciliation instructions. And we could keep doing that without having to worry about getting 60 votes to be able to call a vote on the floor. So as long as we have 51, 50 votes, you know, plus the vice president, that gets us 51. Uh, we, we can pass these bills and we could keep doing this multiple times. Now, you know, the, the actual, there were clearly a lot of unanswered questions when they came out, but we heard a lot of discussion of using it. And clearly, you know, it's been something that made the chances of getting what the president had proposed in the Green Book, if the Democrats wanted to go this route, you know, wanted to go with this just purely partisan one side vote, it was much easier to make that happen because you could make this revision. However, what came out this week was a new ruling, and it deals with a little more obscure provision of the reconciliation process. And this is important mainly because it now suggests that the probability of those items we discussed last week becoming law in the near future is much lower and the Democrats may have to decide. They clearly, as we'll discuss in a second, will have one more chance to do something. But, you know, that they have to decide what they want to do, and they're going to have one shot to do it. The new ruling says, the way this works, right, you have a budget bill. Now, currently, budget bills start in the budget committee. And generally, for a bill to leave a committee and go to the floor... Um, it, it has to be cleared out of its budget committee. Now, to reconciliation, that's generally true. It's got to be cleared from the budget committee. However, the law has a requirement that by April 1st, a budget resolution, you know, they're supposed to get the resolution out by April 1st. So because they understood back in 1974 that it was conceivable that we might not be able to do that, the rule allows the chair of the budget committee, currently Vermont Senator Barry Sanders, or not Barry Sanders, I should say, Vermont Senator uh, Bernie Sanders, not a running back, but a, you know, basically Bernie, um, to do that discharge, which he did to get the ARPA out of the committee. Because currently with the evenly divided Senate, the committee is 50-50. The votes are identical for Democrats and Republicans. Therefore, you could not get something to the floor without at least one Republican on the committee voting in favor of moving it to the floor. What the parliamentarian said this time was that you cannot sidestep the automatic discharge rule. So she said, when with these revisions, April 1st has passed. Because April 1st has come and gone, and you've used the discharge already to get a bill out, because of that, you cannot go back and do revisions on the discharge. Nothing in the law suggested, or nothing in the you know, rules that were adopted back in 74, suggested that, essentially, you could go back and use automatic discharge after April 1st. You already have the thing they were worried about. A basic budget resolution is on the table. That's already happened. So the revision would require a, you know, kind of a agreement by both sides. Obviously, as I said, with an evenly divided budget committee right now, that means we'd have to get at least one Republican vote to go in favor. Now, it would be complicated to get a single Republican vote in favor of these things if you want to go full bore for, you know, what's essentially the wish list of the partisans in your party. You know, those who are the, you know, sort of on the, you know, on, let's say, you know, the most aggressive side of your party pushing the strongest agenda. 
And that means that, unfortunately, they would have to come back to a much more centrist resolution to go through. Now, this does not mean they would not get something through. It's possible. But there is a reason why this week you may have heard about President Biden doing a lot more negotiation on the taxes related to a proposed infrastructure agreement, you know, with the other senator from West Virginia, uh, not Senator Manchin, uh, Capito, is that the one? I can't remember her name now, uh, but she's been talking with her. She's a Republican. Uh, and the idea is that they're trying to work out a deal with her because essentially now with this ruling, it looks like we're going to need at the very least, at least one Republican vote on the budget committee. And more likely, you're going to need to be able to set this up to get 10 Republican votes on your side. And that makes it tougher. So, yeah, we'll see what's going to happen. But it does mean it'll probably be a little slower. Now, there's still a chance for the Democrats to use this. Why? Because there's going to be one more budget, right? Beginning for the 2022, the upcoming 2022 budget year. That's the second one this Congress will deal with because each Congress, two years, they deal with two of them. Uh, That budget bill could have this, but it also complicates that because now a budget bill, in essence, whatever you want to do has to go in one big bill. It cannot go in multiple bills that might be easier to get somebody to vote for because each single one doesn't seem as big and huge as the entirety of a package. So it may become much tougher and they may have to get, even with that option next year, they may have to kind of scale back. Otherwise, they may find they're going to lose votes. And that will be true. Now, obviously, they could always try to blow up the filibuster, to blow up the 60-vote rule that's been proposed multiple times. However, currently, it appears that Senator Manchin is a very solid no. Uh, Senator Sinema has also said she's a solid no on blowing up the filibuster. This has gotten many of those, you know, obviously on the more partisan side, a bit upset with both of them. But realistically, that's not an option at this point. So, you know, the... I guess good news is we're going to have a little time to digest the changes we've had recently, at least until probably after September, when they'd probably start the 22 process um, in order to pick this up. They could do a brand new process. They could pass 22 resolution today and have it done, but you just can't use the 21 resolution any longer once you pass new 22. At least we believe that's true. That little topic came up with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act when they wanted to move on to that, but they hadn't yet given up on repealing the Affordable Care Act. You may remember that that finally died for sure on September 30 of 2017, because that was the end of the budget resolution period, and we opened the new one, and that's why TCJA basically ran for the most part from October 1st through the end of December of 2017. So we might be looking at that again, so we may have that same sort of issue Now, they may not need to get it rushed in quite as quickly. We'll see what goes on with that, whether they want it by year end. Uh, There was various reasons based on the 2018 elections why especially a lot in the Republican Party wanted the TCJA before the 1st of 2018 because they had just failed so badly on the repeal ACA ruling. You know, they needed a win and needed it quickly going into an election year. Uh, Democrats may not feel quite as much pressure on that this time, uh, but they may still, you know, start doing something. But I guess the point to understand at this point is the chances that what we discussed last week would become law in the very near future appear much dimmer this week based on this parliamentarian ruling that came out. Okay, let's go to more traditional things we talk about, not arcane rules of the U.S. Senate. Let's talk about just, we have a couple of cases this week. It's been a rather quiet week, but we did have a couple of cases I want to talk about. And the first one is unique. Um, This is the case of United States versus Kronowitz. United States District Court for the Southern District of Florida, case number 19-CV62648, which is issued on June the 3rd, 2021. Now, this case, actually, Mr. Kronowitz had actually kind of won a summary judgment. The court decided not to go there. They needed to hear some testimony. But after that, things did not go well for Mr. Kronowitz. So uh, 
kind of like the next case we're going to talk about, it may have had an initial win for the, uh, let's say, the taxpayer. Second run didn't look so well when it went through courts. Now, Mr. Kronowitz had been a CPA. Uh, he was a CPA and actually apparently still had a little bit. He was always winding down. He had had 60 years of tax practice. He'd been preparing tax returns since 1961 or 62. Um, for the majority of his career, he prepared 30 to 40 tax returns per year. So he certainly didn't have a high volume practice per se. But you would think if you're you know, making a living over this time period, doing 30 to 40 returns per year, you would think, as one person commented on Twitter when I posted a story about this, you would think he would have at least a reasonably, you know, more well-off and more intricate, complicated tax lives type of clientele. You know, I mean, you want to live on 30 to 40 returns a year, you know, you're not getting, you know, $10 for doing the return or $100 for doing the return. You know, we're talking about you need to have, you need to be getting some decent funds there to make a decent living on a per return basis. So we have that, right? Now, he began to wind down his practice in 2008 uh, because of his declining health. But even through 2020, uh, he was still preparing returns for some people for money, right? You know, he prepared 10 to 15 returns each year in 2019 and 2020. He prepared individual returns. He prepared corporate returns. Uh, basically, you know, 1120Ss and 1040s uh, and prepared his own returns. Now, he testified that, yes, as a CPA, during most, during many of those years, I won't be all, I don't know if he's in Florida the entire time, but I doubt their CPE rules went back to 1961. But, you know, for a lot of that time, he had to maintain continuing education, which meant he needed to have every two years completed 80 hours of CPE courses, right? And during his career, he took courses, some of which, which the court mentioned some of, you know, that included tax shelter seminar, foreign taxation, offshore trust, and asset and estate planning, right? Now, interestingly enough, Mr. Kronowitz says he does not recall FBAR ever being mentioned in any of those classes. I find that a little difficult to believe with the nature of classes the court uh, picked. And I have to believe the court did, too, for the very reason that they picked those classes. So I know I've mentioned FBAR multiple times in the courses I've taught over the years. And I know most of the other instructors that I know of, both those with Kaplan and those who are outside of Kaplan on the tax realm, you know, have been mentioning FBAR quite a bit you know, over, especially over the past 10 to 15 years, have done a lot of mentioning of FBAR, uh, actually going back probably over 20 years, been mentioning because it's been something that the IRS has been very interested in. But for whatever reason, Mr. Kronowitz apparently claims he never heard FBAR mentioned in these classes over all these years. Now, Mr. Kronowitz started his offshore adventure when a client allowed him to invest in certain projects in different countries. So he invested with this Mr. Levy, Eli Levy, who was a real estate developer, a client, and he allowed him to buy small percentages in his various developments. Now, he really didn't ask many questions. And he even said, no, I didn't really ask questions what he was doing. I wasn't sure what he was doing. Um, you know, Mr. Levy said if he really, you know, seemed to indicate that Mr. Levy didn't want him to ask questions. Never really said that, but he kind of implicated that way, right? So we ended up doing this. In any ways, in 1999, there were a number of foreign entities that got established, and he believes that Mr. Levy did it. Um, you know, his signature and his former office address appeared on a management administration agreement document. He also had, he had remembered, one thing he did remember from his CPE courses was the one he took on asset protection, and offshore trusts and the like, he did remember that they talked about protecting your assets by moving them offshore. So he remembered that. So he had set up accounts in the Cayman Islands, which of course he claims were set up only to protect himself from potential malpractice claims. In fact, he admits some of this, I think, the court's cherry-picking because this is not something a court generally is going to like. Let's be honest. Conceptually, offshore uh, asset protection planning 
you know, one of its selling points is, well, it doesn't matter what a U.S. court, you know, wants to do. They don't have jurisdiction to reach the asset. So judges don't tend to like things that have kept them from being able to do something that otherwise they should be able to do. So I don't think this emphasis in the opinion was necessarily a good sign for Mr. Kronowitz, but they talked about it. Okay. So what he did, he had a number of, he had two bank accounts in the Cayman Islands, right, with signature authority. Now, he also, for reasons that aren't terribly clear, he set up a trust called the 1210 Trust. Now, he had various gains from the Levy Investments, right? And he was reporting the gains, but he was reporting them on this trust return. And also, the interesting aside was, as money got made and he had these cash distributions to come in to, rep, you know, to, to take care of these gains when they sold things off, uh, he would have them deposit in the Cayman Islands accounts, his own personal ones, then transferred over into the trusts, which was also unusual. And again, then he would report the gains on the trust returns, not his personal returns. So that was kind of easy. Now, here's where things get interesting. He had his own personal return, and basically, the years in question were 2005 to 2010. Now, as we all know, if you have more than a minor amount of interest on your return, you're supposed to file Schedule B, right? And Schedule B was basically supposed to be filed, but the only Schedule B on his return for 2005 to 2010 was a 2008 Schedule B. And on that one, you have those pesky little questions at the bottom. And what he said, what it said at the bottom was asked him if he had, remember, it asked you, do you have a signature authority over a foreign bank account? Signature authority or ownership of a foreign bank account and warns you that if you do, and it's more than, values more than 10,000 points during the year, you should be filing this FBAR form. Well, and if you read the instructions, it talks to you about the fact, you know, about these filings and the need to go look at it. Well, Mr. Kronowitz uh, said, well, no, uh, he didn't really explain why he answered that question, no. They didn't have any. But he did say that, in essence, that he, even though he had, uh, to quote him, had probably seen hundreds of Schedule Bs over the course of his career, he admitted that he probably did not read the instructions of Schedule B because this is his justifications. He's not an account. He's an accountant and not an attorney. To me, seems like a strange argument since the instructions are not the law, but are meant to be a easier to read explanation of the law. So it seems to me that being not an attorney would be more of the reason why he would have read the instructions instead of, you know, going to the law. But on top of that, he stated he was more concerned he didn't really have time to read all that stuff. He was more concerned with taking care of his clients and providing for his family, and he just didn't have all that time to be reading all this stuff. Okay. So here's where it comes in, right? So even though he answered that question and said, nope, it's not me, he said, well, but see, I, I just didn't know. And yeah, I guess I should have filed those forms. But I thought the fact I reported all my income, he was on the trust and I was personal return. The fact that somewhere all the income was reported, that's really the better line to give, you know, that, that that was good enough and that discharged any obligation he had about those offshore accounts. Needless to say, the court was not thrilled with this view. What the court said was, look, this is... Willfulness does not mean you have to knowingly violate an obligation. Gross negligence can qualify for civil, and this is civil and not criminal, but civil willfulness. If you, in essence, kind of, you know, you knew or, you know, you basically, you should have known, right? In this case, that there was a real risk that you were not properly filing FBAR forms right, that needed to be filed. As the court said, there's really our three criteria. You know, you that if he clearly ought to have known that there was a grave risk, an accurate FBAR was not being filed, and he was a position to find out for certain very easily, that represents 
willful failure to file the FBAR, which causes him to get nailed with much bigger penalties. In this particular case, we're looking at penalties in this case for him of over $663,000. And by the t you know through the date this case went to trial, um, in essence, it had grown to over $750,000, over three quarters of a million dollars that he was going to owe. The court said, look, guy, you know, you were told, on, you know, you had a 1040 to fill in as a CPA. And this makes it really bad. I mean, he is trained. He has put himself out as an expert in tracks. He said, you should have known that, you know, you should have read those instructions. Let, let's be blunt. You know, that was there. You should have recognized at the very least on the form on Schedule B, it told you about the need to file this form. Nevertheless, you didn't. You never investigated, even though you're a tax CPA, who presumably therefore has training and who would be able to easily research your FBAR requirements, which, by the way, aren't that difficult to research, you know, essentially to at least understand that, yep, I read the basics here. Sounds like I should report something. Uh, you, you know, you just failed to do it. The whole point of this, to be totally honest, is we're not going to let people get away with willful ignorance. In essence, working hard to maintain your ignorance, which, to be blunt, is what the court seems to believe this person was doing, right? He didn't want to know. He didn't really push see what Mr. Levy was doing with his investments, which is unusual if you're making significant investments that you don't really worry about what they're doing with it. I mean, even Bernie Madoff felt the need to, you know, put together fake statements to give people a picture, you know, some story about what he was doing, even if he wasn't actually doing it. But Mr. Levy didn't even didn't do any sort of reporting, apparently, to him. And again, according to the to the accountant, this is because he didn't ask him for it. Uh, we don't know that Mr. Levy really ever said, no, I won't tell you. Um, and then I'd be very worried about why somebody wouldn't tell me what they were doing. You know, if they're investing, that, that's like, okay, now, I don't know if I like the just trust me routine in that regard. And the court noted that, you know, basically you should have realized you had to do this reporting. You cannot be willfully ignorant. You didn't read the Schedule B instructions. And I'll be honest, some of the set theories that suggest too that, well, why was Schedule B missing from most of those returns? Was he attempting to avoid, and he just screwed up one year, and the tax software put a Schedule B in, and he didn't notice to pull it? You know, is he just trying to avoid having that line on the return? Because to me, looking at that, the fact in 2008 it appeared and then didn't appear in 9 or 10 and didn't appear in the earlier years, almost seems like somebody was pulling the form. You know, it seems like, I mean, there, why, why wasn't it there in those other years, even though it was required for all of the years? Why only once did it get on there? Now, I don't know about you, with my tax software, for tax software I've used all through my career, Schedule B is supposed to be there. It just shows up, right? And then your software hounds you about answering those questions. Well, apparently, this gentleman never had that. As well, the court said, you know, even if, first thing is, so we don't accept this whole theory you know, that it's okay, you just didn't know, and this was a simple mistake. The court said these actions you took by having funds first go into a Cayman account and then move into this trust, you know, the roundabout way you had things happen and the way, way things worked suggests that this was more than a simple mistake. You were managing, you know, you were doing things not as if some nice little naive person who was just receiving these offshore checks. You were taking other actions to deal with it. So we don't buy that your actions are in line with this. So what the CPA said, or what the court said was, based on this CPA's background and experience as a CPA and tax preparer, and the actions in this case, the court finds that Klee ought to have known there was a grave risk he was found to comply with reporting requirements in his foreign accounts. Furthermore, he was in a position to find out for certain very easily had he taken the time to either conduct independent research or consult with another person more knowledgeable on tax law, as to whether any additional reporting requirements might apply to him. I suspect a lot of people who are listening to this podcast could have very easily told this CPA that he needed to report FBAR information. 
So what the court's saying is that this defense, and you sometimes see your clients do this too, you know, so how would they ever prove, you know, what X or Y? And it's like, yeah, whenever you say that, we're probably going to get to one of these. Nobody could believe you're that dumb. What, what the CPA attempted in this case is what I call, what I will refer to often as the Cheek defense, going back to the John Cheek uh, tax case a number of years ago in the U.S. Supreme Court. John Teak had his case reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court. He was convicted of tax evasion. And he was, the court said, well, they didn't tell the jury everything because, you know, the trial court did not allow the jury to determine, you know, they, the court said you had to find that Mr. Cheek, who was an airline pilot, reasonably, you know, believed this garbage that was essentially tax protester garbage. Right. And that therefore for evading tax, if he, you know, if, if he, you know, he did not have, you didn't have to show his belief was reasonable that this stuff was correct as long as it was his relief. And it was a criminal case. That's the other key. Um, now, I should point out on remand, Mr. Cheek was still convicted. And when he tried to appeal, the court said, well, you know, nope, the, the jury, the jury found that it was not that it was, it was not credible that you, given your background and education, you know, could have decided this stuff could possibly be true. And, you know, at best you were, you know, deceiving yourself at best. But in any event, you know, they didn't find that plausible that that, they, you know, that, that it was not, re, you know, that basically you did not establish reasonable doubt of your criminal intent with that because they just couldn't believe an airline pilot could be that stupid. So in many ways, the cheek defense is I was an idiot. Being an idiot is a good criminal defense, not so great necessarily as a civil defense. And in this case, none of it worked. Secondly, we're going to go back to a case here from, it was 2016 that we first talked about the case of MoneyGram Inc. et al. versus Commissioner, Fifth Circuit case, on an appeal from the U.S. and the United States Tax Court. In 2016, this first came to the Fifth Circuit. And what happened in 2016 was there's a question. Is MoneyGram a bank? Now, MoneyGram basically does a lot of things. They'll sell money orders uh, through agents like Walmart, convenience stores, all those places one would go to buy a money order. So they handle that stuff, right? You know, that's what they do. So you go there, you get a money order. They also offer payment processing services to finance to larger financial large financial institutions, uh, and that includes the processing of what's called official checks. In that case, would be things like cashiers' checks and bank checks. You know where there's a backup that yeah this is going to be paid off, and so by going through them, it gives them the level of assurance that the money's been set aside, and that that cashier's check will be paid. So that's how it goes. So that's what these guys do. Now the reason why this was important was because essentially back in, you know, th this all came into a play because they were going to get mortgage-backed security losses. This is back in the real estate crash in the 2007, 8, 9 era is when we had this. Those losses on mortgage-backed securities generally are capital losses. However, if you are a bank, losses on that kind of lending type stuff is considered not a capital loss. So it could offset your income because MoneyGram was a C corp. It's really bad because then capital losses only can offset capital gains. There's nothing like the 3000 per year and you have a very short carry forward window to use them up. So there's a reasonable chance that if there are capital losses and they were big, uh, that MoneyGram would end up finding most of them being effectively non-deductible, never coming into, never being able to be deducted. So they went and claimed this. They claimed they work like a bank. Now, the original reason it went back was because the Sixth Circuit did not like how the tax court had determined that MoneyGram was a bank, the test they had used. And you can go back and read our article from 2016. And it'll show you exactly what they didn't like. This time, the tax court followed the Fifth Circuit's instructions and came back and still determined using that those tests that this was a bank. Now, it was not a bank, I should say. Now, so the Sixth Circuit now goes back and reviews this. So what's a bank? 
Well, this is under Section 581 of the Code. It says a bank or trust company incorporated during business under the laws. You know, a bank or trust. A bank is a bank, and the court points out that is a circular definition. A bank is a bank first, but then has some additional conditions. So, in essence, a bank for this purpose is a subset of a bank generically. So what does that mean? Well, in order for them to qualify as a bank for federal tax purposes, they must be a bank within the common meaning of the term. A substantial part of their business must consist of deposits, loans, and discounts, and an entity must be subject to federal state regulation. The Fifth Circuit determined that this entire case could be done. Remember, since all three of those had to be true, if one of them is shown to be false, we don't worry about the others. And they said... MoneyGram fails on the first test. They're not a bank within the common meaning of the term. The Fifth Circuit said that the basic questions, looking at various citations, what's a bank? A bank, you know, the bare requirements to be a bank is you must receive deposits from the general public repayable to depositors on demand or at a fixed time. You have to use deposit funds for secure loan, and there has to be a relationship of a, debit, a debtor and creditor between the bank and the depositor. Now, what the court found was they didn't find that this was deposit. They said, look, people use banks and deposit funds with banks for safekeeping. Now, they're saying people aren't really depositing funds with MoneyGram. Now, MoneyGram says, wait, 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 wait. Uh, you know, these people who are buying money orders are giving us money, right? And we are, you know... And, and we have that money, which eventually gets paid out to the party that they put as a payee on the money order. Well, the Fifth Circuit said, we agree you accept money from these people. But they say, but what you're selling is more like a gift card, not like a deposit. If I deposit $10,000 with Bank of America, I can go in the next day and ask to withdraw $1,000. If I buy a $10,000 money order, and I have a balance down of 9000 with Bank of America. If I buy a $10,000 money order, the first problem is it's really not payable back to me. It's payable back to whoever I put there as the payee. So it's really a way to transfer money. It's not really on deposit for me. It's, on, it's there with MoneyGram for whoever this check is going to, whoever this money order is going to. Now, MoneyGram said, well, you could always put your own name on there. And the court said, okay, that's possible, but almost never going to be done. But then number two, they said, it's still not like a deposit. Because all I can do with that $10,000 money order, if I put my own name on it, is go back to MoneyGram and get the full $10,000. I can't take $1,000 and leave $9,000 on deposit. They're saying these funds are not there like a deposit bank account. We do not find it to work that way. They said, well, well, but they're, they're, they're like checks. You know, so the, these are like checks and bank accounts have checks. And they said, yeah, but no. Yes, they are somewhat like checks. But here's the catch. The definition did not say issuing checks. They said taking deposits. And they said, and the checks are kind of the opposite of that. It's not receiving funds. It's kicking them out. So... And they said, remember, the key issue here is deposits with the bank for safekeeping. And that is not what's happening here. We're not giving MoneyGram funds for safekeeping. We're giving MoneyGram funds to transfer funds. They said this is way more like buying a gift card. And I don't think anybody's going to claim that Kroger's in the business of being a bank because Kroger sells gift cards that you could give to somebody who could then go back to a Kroger and buy groceries. That's not, they're not a bank. Right? They're not banks for doing that. You know, Best Buy, the same thing. You can buy a Best Buy gift card. Doesn't make Best Buy a bank. Right? Not the way it works. Well, they said, well, okay, but, but what about those um, accounts we use, um, you know, where we talk about the issues where we have the accounts used by the banks for payment processing? Now, on those accounts, if I'm going to set up there for official checks, Right. A bank that wants to use MoneyGram to clear those has to first put a deposit with MoneyGram equal to their average one-day issuance of official checks. At the end of each day, what they do is they will then transfer to MoneyGram 
an amount equal to the official checks they wrote that day to cover those checks. Okay, and that keeps happening. That original first day deposit, that original first day advance payment stays on deposit with MoneyGram. Now, the Fifth Circuit said, look, that's also, yes, there's a balance there. We understand it. But it's not really like the balance of my checking account at Bank of America. First thing is financial institutions are not putting the money there for safekeeping. They have various ways to keep their funds safe. It's not the same as me not, in, not wanting to have, let's say, you know, $50,000 in bills stuffed in this, you know, hidden somewhere in my house, you know, which if a burglar finds it, they walk off with everything. You know, I have it with Bank of America because they will secure it. They'll protect it from loss. They'll protect it from theft, right? And get all those protection mechanisms by using the bank. Said. So these financial institutions don't need that. Secondly, they said, yes, there's that first day deposit that stays there all the time, plus whatever floats there for the monies that haven't yet been presented on official checks issued, which is always going to be something there. But it's like, but that's not really their money. They said, and they can't take back that initial first day deposit. They can't touch that unless they totally stop using you. Only if they remove it for official payment. So this is a pure payment service, not a deposit account in the nature of the bank. For that reason, they found that money that MoneyGram was not a bank and therefore could not qualify for the special treatment that would allow those mortgage-backed security losses to be treated as not capital losses. Now, as I note in the article, most of us don't deal with not quite banks, right? Or even with banks, to be honest, as clients that we do a lot of reporting for and do a lot of tax work for. But this is interesting for a couple of reasons. First, it's interesting to read this case and see how the court deals with what is a bank is a bank. You know, a very not clear definition, but all we have to work with in the law and we still have to work with it. So you can see how they work their way out of that. Okay, and it's kind of interesting to see how they build, how they get their backup, how they work in to help deal with cases like that, where you have a code section that's not very clear. But secondly, I think it's also really important to understand how easy it is to overread the results of a case. I guarantee you there are people that read in 2016 MoneyGram won a reversal of the tax court decision. That held that MoneyGram was not a bank. Now, that is true, but the details are important here. While the Fifth Circuit in 2016 did say, tax court, you ruled they're not a bank. We don't like your ruling. They never, however, said you were wrong and MoneyGram clearly is a bank. They never ruled MoneyGram was a bank. They just ruled that the test the tax court used to determine if they were a bank was improper. Unfortunately, when we read these little blurbs or one-line headlines or these little summaries, you know, on that are half a sentence in our tax research materials, um, that half sentence can't give us all of the nuances that are found in a much longer case. Neither can the articles I've written give that level of nuance. And the problem is, though, if you go with that one liner and say, oh, there was a case, it was held, MoneyGram is not, you know, they overturned the task order, said MoneyGram was not a bank. Too many people would read that to say, well, then a thing like MoneyGram is a bank, and we therefore can get this ordinary loss treatment for these other things we're working with that we think could arguably be like a bank the way MoneyGram's like a bank? Answer is, if you're relying on them being like MoneyGram, not working so well now, especially in the Fifth Circuit. So be a little careful when you look at court cases. Well, as I said, been rather a dull week otherwise. So this has been our current federal tax developments for the week of June the 7th, 2021. I, you know, be sure you catch me. I'll be on the various uh, tax listservs on the Connect site. For Arizona, New Jersey, um, Illinois, take a look at Washington, and uh, you know, and a few others that I take a look at there. So post there if I see something, I'll try and respond. 
Uh, also, my email address, edzolvesacurrentfultaxdevelopments.com. If you send me something there, I'll try to get back to it. Uh, beginning to do some CP courses this week. I'm in Phoenix. Uh, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm in Phoenix, I guess, since it's online still. But I'll be in Phoenix online uh, doing some courses this week. It actually be my last set of courses, at least as scheduled right now, in Arizona that are online only. Uh, the next time I do courses for Arizona in August, uh, we are planning to do live sessions, uh, live, live sessions with people in room and also broadcast. We'll still do it that way. But I am doing a session, which will be, if you're listening to this on the 7th, today on multi-state taxation, probably a little late to sign up for that, doing Arizona accountancy ethics and the Arizona tax bills on Tuesday uh, of this week on the 8th. And then on the 9th, I will be doing Preparing Complex Returns. This Friday, I will do a two-hour webinar, and I probably will still do a bunch of webinars that will, again, not generally be live live. Since only two hours, it's kind of, you know, it, it, even though they're not that far away and I could get down there pretty easy, it still seems like a kind of waste of time to travel there and travel back uh, for this and for you to travel there and travel back. I'll be doing it on the Employee Retention Credit. That will come up this Friday for Arizona. That one is at 10 a.m., as I recall. So we'll have that running. So, again, doing a few courses. We're getting into that. As I said, we are going to be slowly, probably, depending upon where you are, how things are rolling out and how things happen, uh, beginning to do some live courses. Not surprisingly, the first sets I will do will be here in Phoenix as we see how many people are, you know, now coming out and going to things. I've definitely been out to the movies and to restaurants. And while some places are coming back stronger, other ones are, you know, still kind of, I'm not seeing a very big crowd. So in the movies, I've not seen a huge crowd yet. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those things as people get comfortable, we'll see how things go. And I think that's going to drive how quickly we can go live everywhere with people in the room. If you really want everybody in the room, we'll see how that goes. But that'll be coming up during the year. So keep your eye on that as we go out that way. Otherwise, have fun. Uh, and I will see you back next week here with current federal tax developments.